A tremendous performance from the Colombians, and on this showing, they could be a big threat at next year's finals. But don't say you heard it from me. At this point, and the USA group is comprised of Switzerland, Colombia, and Romania. Colombians were very confident. Pele said they could win the cup. But as Valderrama met Hadji in Pasadena, the Romanians would feel more at home. What appeared a joyous occasion in Los Angeles ended up having the most tragic overturns. Ernie Stewart made it 2-0 to the USA, but Colombian defender Escobar's own goal would begin a chain of events that would end with his murder just days after his return to his homeland. Hello and welcome to this brand new series on World Football Index, where we're going to be looking at some of the most important, influential and interesting stories in world football. In the first episode, we're going to be looking at the Colombia side that played the 1994 World Cup, a really modern, progressive side built around the intelligent passing of Carlos Valderrama, the tough tackling of Lionel Alvarez, the quality and invention of Festino Aspria, the bravery and fearlessness of René Higuita in goal, and of course, the poise and elegance of Andres Escobar in defence. I'm delighted to say that Tim Vickery will be joining me to discuss this excellent team. Tim has been working down here in South America for many years, based in Brazil, reporting on the developments and providing excellent English language content on South American football. Welcome, Tim. Lovely to be here. Lovely to kick the ball, kick the ball around. I doubt that we'll do it with quite the same elegance as Valderrama and company. My second guest is uh, Felipe Cardenas, who's a Colombian-American who reports on on football in the United States, based in Atlanta, but is the Colombian and was here for some of these games down here in Colombia in the in the early 90s and experienced it firsthand. So it was a welcome for Felipe. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to talking football, soccer w- with you guys. And, and right now, we haven't been able to do this for so long. I'm about to do a Tino Asprilla cartwheel if if this goes well (laughs) absolutely i mean really looking forward to getting into it so first of all let's have a look at the team that we're talking about today um a team of a lot of domestically based based players uh the the squad for the world cup had six from nacional five from junior and five from america um plenty of quality throughout the team uh starting at the back in goal uh oscar cordoba ended up playing in the 94 world cup because rene higuita was Tied up in a lot of political wrangling, he'd been involved in uh, resolving a hostage negotiation and, and the government had decided that uh, his involvement meant that he should be imprisoned, um, a controversial decision that has since been uh, heavily criticised by, by many. Um, but it, it really changed the way Colombia play. Tim, how important was René Higuita to this Colombia side? Absolutely vital in, in, in two senses, I think. One was that, that he was such a huge character, absolutely unfazed by everything and anything. No, nothing was a problem. I mean, this Colombia side, I think, came of age. Uh, and this is something that uh, the coach Maturano he, he emphasised at the time, came of age uh, on their trip to Wembley in, in 88. Um, but he'd seen the potential the previous year in, in the Copa America but to go to Wembley was such a huge thing for them. Uh, and uh, Higita, right from the start, is showing everyone, no big deal, we can cope with this, I can cope with this. Even the way that uh, he uh, acknowledged his mistake in the 1990 World Cup when he got caught by Roger Miller, a uh, mistake as big as a house, no problem, no problem. That's the way we play, that's the way I play. Shrugs it off. Huge character, Higita. Uh, and I really wonder what may have happened 
with him just to steady the ship emotionally a little bit. I really think they missed him from an emotional point of view, but also so important to the team from a technical point of view, from a tactical point of view. And here we get into the 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 mother idea of the side. Now, remember, Argentina win the World Cup in 86 with a back three. Brazil, copy, follow suit, win the Copa America in 89 with a back three. Go to Italia 90 with a back three. Colombia are doing something very, very different. Something very, in a way, traditionally South American, but also in the way that football ideas ping back and forth. There is a huge, huge and acknowledged influence from Holland in 74. Um, in that, that this is a team that plays in lines with uh, a very compact, little difference between that, little, not much space between the lines, facilitating that short passing game that was so hypnotic. You know, it really was as, as hypnotic as a rhythm of the salsa that was coming out uh, um, at, at, the, at, at the time. So the lines of the team are high up the field. And you get in Higita someone who will take responsibility years and years ahead of his time, really, but he'll take responsibility for things that are happening 30, 40 metres from goal, allowing that defensive line to push up, push up higher, allowing the team to stay compact, allowing them to play that short passing game. So that that's absolutely vital for, for the team. Now, didn't matter quite as much in that wonderful World Cup qualifier away to, to, to Argentina because then Colombia are the counter-attacking side. It's Argentina at home, Argentina coming at them. Colombia can play a little bit deeper then and exploit their speed on the uh, on the break and exploit the lack of pace, a traditional problem with Argentina, the lack of pace in their defensive unit. But it becomes a huge problem against Romania. Now, I think it's easy to forget how well Colombia played in that game against Romania. Uh, it was a it was a truly great game. It's two wonderful, wonderful sides, but they get they get caught. Colombia are expected to take the initiative a little bit more. Romania are the counter-attacking side. And and so Cordoba has got to take those decisions. And he's got no idea whatsoever. He's a thoroughly competent keeper in the goal. But coming out, forget about it. And he's he's you know, he, he gets really shown up by 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 Haji. So both from uh, an emotional point of view, and from a tactical point of view, I think Higuita was enormously missed in that World Cup. And I really think that the story could have been different had he been there. Yeah, you can definitely see that Cordoba has definitely got his best uh, René Higuita costume on, but he's he's not the same. He's not the same. You can see how uncomfortable he is receiving the ball 40, 50 yards from goal and how Romania were definitely targeting him. Had he scored that goal, we'll come on to later. But he also tried a couple more times to catch him off his line and came very close to doing so. So it was very unfortunate for Oscar Cordoba, obviously a very, very talented goalkeeper, but he looked very uncomfortable uh, coming off his line. Felipe, what are your thoughts on, on the two goalkeepers? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with both of you, especially, you know, the the, the synopsis and, and the breakdown that, that Tim gave about Higuita. You know, when I was growing up in that, in the, in the the late nineties, you know, Higuita was, was, a, was a hero to all of us. Um, and because he was such a different type of goalkeeper, but not only that, he was, he was a character. He was very talented with the ball at his feet. His technique was that of a number 10, you know, in the middle of the park, he could, he could juggle. He, his first touch was very good. Uh, and, and I agree. I think he did his presence alone 
whether it was playing for Nacional, who, who I, you know, I saw some great matches as, as a teenager uh, in Colombia between the, the, the America de Cali side of the 90s and the, the Nacional de Medellin side, you know, those games were were total crackers. They were just unbelievable matches in Colombia. And, and Iguita was there. You could see that team, especially the back, that back four, just grow in confidence, uh, even with every risk that he was taking. Uh, the, you know, the stadium would stand up when he was on the ball. But the, I think the, the opponents also knew that he was someone to be reckoned with. Not just because, yeah, he can take a risk and you might be able to exploit it. But the teammates knew exactly what he was going to do. And they grew in confidence and they were able to play out of the back, which no one was doing much in the late 90s. I felt like football back then was very physical, very direct, a lot of long ball, uh, whether you're watching, you know, the English you know, the football in England or Serie A. Uh, you know, the technique in Serie A was, was, was at a high level. But in Colombia, those of us that were watching it firsthand knew that the players were very good on the ball. Um, and, you know, Nikita was one of those guys. Me personally, I always, I liked Oscar Cordova a, a lot. But, you know, he was a shot stopper. I think there's a different type of goalkeeper between himself and Iguita. Iguita was was a guy that could read read the game very well excellent in, in, in any type of 1v1 situation, uh, especially penalty kicks. He was very good at, at stopping penalty kicks. Uh, he was a bit of a sweeper, you know, back then. Uh, he could fool uh, a number nine into committing, and then that was just that little feint was enough for whether it was Nacional or Colombia to play out of the back. Oscar Cordova was a very good, athletic, agile shot stopper. Um, and in that five nothing win against Argentina, he was probably it was one of his best matches for Colombia. It was that type of game for him. It was meant for him, uh, where they were going to be on the back foot, where you had a player like Gabriel Batistuta who was going to be running at you. I think we all know the game that Batistuta has. Is he's a guy that will just fire a rocket from wherever he is no matter the angle and you need a guy that can cover that far that first you know the near post something that Iguita was was always criticized for he did not take care of his near post almost ever I think if you watch some of his games especially you know that goal from Lebarski uh in the 1990 World Cup was a great goal by the by the West Germans but again classic kind of Iguita being caught, you know, not not with the best technique, not with the best, you know, goalkeeper. The technique that a goalkeeper has, where they know where their their two the, the the two sticks are, where they are within the six yard box as well. So, Oscar Cordo was the complete opposite, and and I agree. I think that World Cup in '94, you know, I remember being I was 16 at the time, and yes, you know, the loss to the United States was was a shocker, if you will, but the loss to Romania was the gut punch that was the one that that left an entire nation just flabbergasted devastated because i I agree with tim like they played really well colombia played well but they were just they were undone by a couple plays from the romanians uh the types of goals that just crush you in a world cup uh and colombia had not lost i don't have the numbers but they just had not lost in over a year, probably any type of match. And so, yeah, I think a, a goalkeeper like Iguita in that match against Romania, I think would have given them the moxie, you know, the, the competitive arrogance that Colombia had 
throughout that year. They were showboating. They were beating any anyone that wanted to play them. And back then, you, a national team could play a club team as well. So they played Milan, they played Palmeiras, and they beat everybody. And I think like they got to that World Cup and they were just missing, you know, that little bit of cockiness that you need to get. Bodies a lot of the spirit of that that great Colombia team. Looking at the defence, one of the most high-profile players, Andres Escobar, who played alongside Perea in the South American World Cup qualifying, they only conceded two goals. Uh, how good was Andres Escobar, Tim, and and how important was he for this Colombia side? Very, very classy indeed. When I mean, he was uh, he was he was about to to move to European football, and uh, he don't don't think he'd have been disgraced there at all. Um, very clever guy as well, and, and one of the uh, one of the people who was who was respected, who was looked up to by the rest of his um, of his teammates. I, I think you can tell so much of the story of uh, of that Colombia side between two Escobar goals. He gets the goal that uh, brings them a draw at Wembley in '88, and then it's his his own goal in in 1994 that that ends um, that, end, that ends that inve- that that adventure. One of the saddest things I ever read was. Um, Aspria talking about the flight back to Colombia after the World Cup. Uh, and he's sitting next to Escobar, who's, you know, who's a kind of a wise head that, uh, that, uh, that they're looking to. And, and Escobar tells Aspria, look, I know you love going out. Don't do it for a while. Keep your head down. It's probably best that we keep a low profile for a while. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Escobar didn't take his own advice. I, I was able to see him play several times between 88 88- and, and you know ninety three uh, locally in Colombia and I you know I went, was able to go to many matches in Cali uh, and, and he was very good on the ball he's a left footed central defender tall uh, but like Tim said very classy very polished when the when he was in possession um, and he was a very good tackler read the game very well and he came from a very good family in in Colombia so you know again I think we know that in, in South American football there's always like really drastic gaps socioeconomically between you know teammates and 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 i think that's why he was very well respected he was a well-educated individual uh and but he was able to you know he made a living playing football like the rest of these guys uh so yeah he was a big miss you know in 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 not the world not being able to see the best of him at that world cup he's remembered for for that own goal and what happened later but Prior to that World Cup, like Tim said, you know AC Milan and several big clubs in Europe were were ready to pull the trigger because he was you know such a very good defender. You know I think Colombia for years, especially when I was growing up, and 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 really influenced by the way the national team played and and some of the players. You know, I think we always knew that as a Colombian and as 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 a supporter of the national team, we knew that we could defend. Like we knew we had strong defenders. We knew we were going to have two very good uh, holding midfielders at all times that would tackle, that would set the tone, that would crack someone's ankles if we needed a you know a message sent, and would allow Valderrama to play freely. Uh, but those central defenders were, were were normally very good. You know, Perea, 
Um, Luis Pereira was was not a flashy defender, but he was very good. He was just he read the game well. He he had enough pace to keep up with some very good forwards and strikers back in the nineties. Uh, we had Alexis Mendoza who played in that five uh, nil win, who later became still he's still a manager in Colombia. But you know he was he was uh, kind of like a poor man's Andres Escobar, right footed central defender. Again, good on the ball, good in the air, could defend, could play out of the back. You know, and then the the fullbacks, uh, you know, El Chonto Herrera, a diminutive right back. Again, very good on the ball, which was cl- which is clear a profile for the, the, the Maturana team. Everyone on that pitch, no one was was terrible on the ball. Everyone had very good touch and could play. And so Chonto Herrera, Wilson Perez, who was right footed but could play on the left, these are two modern attacking fullbacks that could get up and down the field. In Wilson Perez's case, he was a better. I think he was a better defender than Herrera. He, if he had to sit back and stay home, he could do that. Uh, I felt like. Chonta Herrera was just a very cerebral player. I think he was outmatched physically if it came to that. But they were very good. They took care of the ball. They understood who they were playing behind. So if, if Freddie Rincon was on your side, you knew he was going to be up and down the pitch. I think they just had a very good chemistry within them. But as a Colombian and as a, as a, as a supporter of the national team, as someone that was watching them play, uh, you know, those fullbacks were very much uh, part of the identity of that national team. They were players that were consistently, constantly on the ball. They were on the ball just as much as any of the midfielders. So they were very important to, to the to, uh, Francisco Maturana's system. Yes, it definitely wasn't the case of, you know, sometimes you get the feeling that maybe the weaker players are at fullback, particularly looking back into the 90s. But you know, this was a very modern interpretation of the role of the fullback in terms of contributing to, to the build-up of play and, and arriving in the final third, uh, which was something very, very modern and very progressive. No, Tim? Yeah, and because uh, of, of that team is compact, so uh, you're receiving the ball. Um, you don't have a lot of space, um, but there's not a lot of space between you and the line in front of you. So uh, it, it's it's a team that is that is built to give. Uh, to receive and give the ball. I and mean, uh, Valderrama, and I, lo- I loved watching Valderrama. I absolutely loved. And from from discovering him at Wembley in 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 eighty eight, Valderrama was a player who always had the ball and never had the ball because he's you, you've got it, it's gone. You've got it, it's gone. You've got it, he's got it, it's gone. You know, you try and close him down and it's already gone. You know, and he's moved in position to get it back. But in order for that to function, he's got to have people around him who can receive it and give it back. So uh, it, it, it was a fundamental, I think, for the idea of that team that everyone was comfortable on the ball and everyone could play two touch. You know, I think the people that will listen to this, you know, your, your followers, Simon, are very, very familiar with what Tiki Taka became, right? What, what Barcelona, what Pep Guardiola, what those excellent Barcelona teams and obviously the 2010 World Cup winning Spain team, the way that they dominated football for so many years. But before Tiki Taka... There was Toque Toque in, in, in Colombia, and, and it was all about Valderrama and anyone around him. And, you know, what Tim says is it's so incredibly accurate because, and I, I know this firsthand because as a 15-year-old in Cali, you know, a, a very important age, I feel like, if you're serious about playing football, and I was very serious about it, I, I, I essentially fooled my parents, two very smart Colombian physicians, to let me go to Colombia for an entire year because they thought I was going to get a good ed- education. 
clearly I just wanted to play football every single day at a high level. Um, and, and I did, but when I was there, I learned to play the way the national team played, the way that the top clubs played, um, and the way Valderrama played. And so I was a six or a 10 and that's how you were expected to play. You would go to your center back, your center back would just kind of roll the ball to you. If you're, if you were that type of midfielder, you would go, you'd pass it to to the closest, whether it's your a holding midfielder or a fullback, that guy may just one touch it back to you. And, and that's how you keep the ball. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was learning to play that way. Uh, and it was funny because when I came back to the States after that year and I went and played for my, uh, you know, my, my club team in, in Indiana, which is again, a, a, a pretty high level for, for 16, 17 year olds. I would go up to my center back when they had the ball and he would look at me like, what are you doing? Like, get out of my space. Like I'm going to send it long. Like they didn't understand that that's how I was playing. And so it was very, it was very unique, you know? And when you watch that five, nothing game against Argentina, it's just two systems, two styles just coming together and clashing. And the breakthrough comes from Colombia's ability to play close to like, just like Tim said, like the lines were so close together. Everyone from Gabriel Gomez, who's just like there to, to crack people and to, to one touch it to Leonel or one touch it to Carlos Valderrama. You know, even him on the ball, he was able to break out of, you know, very compact midfield uh, and, and open the scoring. But that style of play was so, so important to Colombians in the 90s because it was, it, we identified, we literally identified the way the Felipe, the game against Germany in 1990. It's one of my favourite games ever. Now, it's, it's the third group game. And I know the Germans have, have won the first two. So they've, they've already qualified for, for the next round. So they're not, a, you know, they've made one or two changes. So they're not 100%. But honestly, they never saw the ball in that game. The whole game was Colombia just working these, these, these little triangles. Now, that, that was a Colombia side in 90 before the emergence of Asprilla and Valencia and so on. It didn't really have the cutting edge. And Colombia only needed a draw to qualify. So they, 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 were, they, they, were, they were quite happy while it was nil-nil just playing their little triangles. And it was beautiful to watch. It was just gorgeous to watch the Germans being utterly bamboozled by this, this passing style. And then, as we referred to earlier on, Higuita gets beaten at his near post with a minute to go and Colombia are out. And then suddenly, you know, Valderrama and Rincon get together and think, well, yeah, the objective of this game is to score a goal. It's not just to keep, you know, to work our little triangles. And, you know, bang, 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 ball in the back of the net, 1-1, Colombia through, through, through to the next round. But it's a fabulous game to watch because you are watching the world champions, and Germany were the champions of that tournament, being absolutely outclassed and bamboozled by that style of Colombian short passing. Can I just ask Felipe a question on that? Because it, on it seems to me that, you know, you're thinking, where did this Colombia side come from? And you can identify one or two things. One, it obviously is 
the raising of standards of Colombian domestic football because of the of the second El Dorado years, you know, with the drug money being laundered and and, and suddenly, you know, America of Cali at a Real Madrid of Latin America. And so there's lots of good quality foreigners coming in. And then you get you get Maturana with his idea of play. Maturana who's just fed up of of Colombia leaving Valderrama on the bench because they want to pick another defensive midfielder you know, on the basis that the opposition is more important than us. He's saying, no, we're in more, more important than the opposition. We will set out to impose our game on the opposition. But I also wonder, you know, Colombia was going to stage the 86 World Cup. It didn't. But that stadium in Barranquilla was built. It's a lovely stadium, the Metropolitano. It's a gorgeous stadium, you know, and Colombia liked to play their games there, you know, the, the World Cup qualifiers, in, in the afternoon heat of Salsa City. You know, and uh, um, how much of that, of, 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 the, of the rise of Barranquilla as a base and the fact that that just combines with this salsa hypnotic rhythm, hypnotic rhythm of short term, of, 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 of short passing. Do you see those things going together and forming Absolutely. that side? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I was fortunate to be at a position where I was traveling to Colombia. My parents are both Colombian. They, they emigrated to the United States when I was very young. And so I grew up in the United States, but every summer we were going to Colombia. We'd spend, my brother and I would spend the summers in Colombia with my cousins and, and, and they would either come to the States the next summer and we would kind of go back and forth, but it was a great time in Colombian football. And, you know, the first time I ever saw Carlos Valderrama play was in Cali in 1986. He was playing for Deportivo Cali. It was a match against Once Caldas. Uh, and, and he, it was the first time I saw him in person. I was immediately just mesmerized. Uh, I was an an eight year old, I was eight years old and I already knew who is this guy. I, I love him immediately. Uh, you know, the hair, the way he played, the way I could feel the, the entire stadium kind of shake and, 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 and react when he had the ball and he made a pass and, or if he, you know, he, you know, he could, he could keep defenders off of him. He was just a great player. Um, and, and throughout the 90s, from like 88 to 93, when I was consistently going back and forth, it was some of the best years of Colombian football. Like you said, Tim, clearly there was some you know dark money helping that happen. Uh, but as a fan, you were just you, you benefited from seeing the top players in Colombia, some of the top players in South America play in that domestic league. You know, I remember for a long time, one of my very favorite players was Ricardo Gareca who now is the manager of the Peruvian national team in Argentine who played for America de Cali. And he was idolized in Colombia. He was an excellent striker. You know, in fact, I saw him score off of, score from close to, not necessarily midfield, but he was probably a little bit, maybe about 40 yards away. And it was America de Cali against Nacional de Medellín in Cali. And he caught Iguita off his line. And, and hosed him, scored from my 40 yards out, just put it right over his head and the stadium almost fell, fell apart. But, you know, that, that brashness of the way people play, the, the fact that Colombia at the time was going through, you know, the, the, let's, be, let's be clear, the cartels were running the country. Uh, there was money th- being thrown around. You could probably, you know, if you're a 25-year-old, 30-year-old footballer, you're a star, uh, you know, salsa is is playing all over the country. The nightlife is just blowing up. Um, and and to your point, Tim, they did they did almost host that '86 World Cup. It was taken away from them for some of the problems that we're talking about. Uh, 
uh, but the stadium stadiums were built. You know, the, the the infrastructure was in place. And I agree, every time Colombia played, and if the people of Colombia knew that Colombia would be hosting in Barranquilla, it was as if we knew we had it. You know, we knew we could beat anybody in that stadium, even even Argentina, even Brazil. You know, club, you know, countries that traditionally just the color of their shirt can shake up a Colombian national team. But in in that period of time, Colombia was actively playing very well in Copa Americas. They were getting to the final rounds. They were placing third, getting to semifinals. Uh, Carlos Valderrama was the South American Player of the Year in that you know in that time frame late 90s you know he was up there with Diego Maradona let's not forget you know he was he was finishing behind one of the greatest players to ever play the game for for a continental prize like South American Football of the Year so it was an amazing time to be able to witness that and i think what tim said is absolutely accurate colombia could always you know even the 1990 team they were they were good you know they were good but they didn't have some of those game changers quite yet, like Dino Asprilla and Adolfo Valencia, who many people forget was playing for Bayern Munich. Not a not a starter every single match in the Bundesliga, but he made it to a very difficult club to play for. Uh, and, and that was the difference. That was really what took that country where we realized, hey, this this country can produce world-class strikers which is very which is difficult to do for any country in world football and suddenly colombia had two very good ones to uh, to um go back to the kind of cartel thing because when I, the first time i discovered colombia was the copa america 2001 so what it was like in those years i i, I really you know I, I, it, it just seems off the scale you know when it was la colombia yeah. um but uh I think it was about 2003 in the fair city of Cali. I picked up a book that Maturana wrote uh, after they qualified for Italia 90, but before the tournament. It's a great book. He, he goes in depth about the construction of the team and so on. But one thing that really interested me was that he's saying there, and this is before Italia 90, the team is already receiving death threats from the cartels, even then. My question now, Filippi, is how has that cranked up? between the early months of 1990 and the 94 world cup and how much of a of of an how much of a, of a game changer if you like is the death of Pablo Escobar how much was he a kind of protector of the team in Medellin well, clearly it was it was a factor you know a lot of those players knew him personally and, and maybe were put in positions to excel because of the relationships that they had with Pablo Escobar. Uh, I think now it's it, maybe back then it was not talked about as much, but now we know the full story. We know that some players like Iguita um, and, and some of the other players like Leonel Alvarez, like guys that were from the, the barrios of Medellin knew him well, uh, knew that may probably respected him very well. And, and I think that gave that Colombian side probably some sort of, invincibility maybe that was the for, the the sense that they knew that uh they, they were kind of in the same airspace if you will of, of some one of the most feared individuals in the world uh and so i think that's very much an identity of unfortunately that that, that cartel the managing cartel just you know someone like pablo escobar was very much a part of what the national team was back then 
because you, and you can clearly make a difference. Can't be this, before Italian ninety. They're getting death threats from cartels and they're just shrugging it off. But we know about the absolute chaos in the camp before the USA game in nineteen ninety four. You know, the, the, you know the, the the team selections changing. Aspilia is saying that during the national anthem, he's looking around, thinking someone's going to shoot me in the during the United States game. So clearly. That relationship that is com- that is completely it changed. It was as everyone. It was as if those relationships that I mentioned before had gone sour. And I think when you watch that match, knowing what you know now, and and I, I think it was so important that you mentioned it, Tim, that the Romania game, Colombia played very well. It was like the Colombia team that was coming up that year that had destroyed everyone. That was very confident. They play well in the first match and they still lose, which was you know gut wrenching, but. Just coming out onto the field against the United States, if you watch that now and you watch the Colombian team come out on the field, they did not even want to be there. They knew they were shaken. Uh, you know, if you look at Carlos Valderrama in that game, he, you know, he, there are a lot of jokes about Valderrama walking the pitch when he played, uh, but he just was not, he did not want to be there. Those players were clearly affected psychologically by the death threats to, to, to family members of, of some of the, the members of the team, you know, Gabriel Bardavas Gomez essentially forced off of the field, you know, after receiving a death threat that if he plays his family, you know, will be, will be harmed, will be killed. So, you know, there's no way that you can play through that. And, and I think that did, you know, to, to your point, Tim, the way that that team had been going to an Escobar, a Pablo Escobar finca, you know, before the before the 1994 World Cup, leading up to that, to play friendlies, to play in big matches where carts and numbers were, were betting against each other. And, and these footballers had to go because of their relationship that they had. Clearly, those relationships had been burned because of the performance against Romania and just what was at stake the pride that was at stake for mafioso because of the, you know, the, the, the betting that had gone on or whatever, but it changed everything. It changed everything from a sporting side for, for decades to come. It was obviously a very difficult time and, you know, Colombia, even today, and again, Colombia is a very different country today, but in many ways, Colombia has been for decades, uh, kind of a neo-feudalistic society where the, the, the people who control the, the neighborhoods, who control the cities, uh, you know, often are the mafia. And as, as Tim mentioned, you know, with Pablo Escobar being removed, it created a vacuum, which created a lot of new violence and created instability. And again, Pablo Escobar was the, the source of a lot of this violence to begin with. But you take out the organization, the hierarchy in the city... And all sorts of new powers were coming to assert themselves. And as you mentioned, uh, Gomez retiring from football, having having received uh, the death threats for the manager prior to that USA game. Um, it's obviously very difficult. And Leonel Alvarez, again, is, is a man of, of these neighbourhoods. Higuito is a man of these neighbourhoods. And he grew up playing on pitches created by Pablo Escobar. So it's a complicated relationship Colombia has with the narcos. Um, it, it's very difficult. You can completely understand why these poor young footballers will be drawn to the guy in the neighbourhood handing out food and money and, and support. But again, this is somebody who created the violence that continues to create a lot of pain and, and suffering in Colombia today. After the debacle of the 1994 World Cup, and, and by then Escobar had been killed. Let, let, let's not for, let's not forget he was killed in, in before that World Cup. Um, but it was enough. It, it's as if just in general, Colombian football just took 
a, a spill. It just took a, a big dip. That generation of footballers, I think everyone knew that that, were, that was their World Cup. Uh, you know, by the time that same team got to the 1998 World Cup in France, many of the footballers, you know, were they weren't the same players. Even Carlos Valderrama at the time was playing in the United States. Uh, was not the same player. I mean, Gunn was not the no, same. You saw player. that in the Copa America in '95. Yeah. That team was over, wasn't it? It was already. It was. It was. It, they, they'd gone. Agree. Agree. So, yeah. looking finally at the last few players in the team, um, someone I think was very important, and as we mentioned, was absent for the USA game, was Gomez in front of the the defense. And Leonel Alvarez, I think, is a very underrated footballer. Agreed. Obviously, he brings the headlines for his tough tackling, mm. and he definitely had that. But the way he played in that Argentina game, often from the left of Gomez, coming all the way to the touchline, but really covering and playing some smart passes. And then Freddy Rincon from the right, who was very smart at filling in gaps. And Asprilla pulled close to Rincon, and they worked very closely together. Uh, it was a really dynamic midfield. Alvarez never lost the ball, did he? Rarely, rarely. You had complete agree. trust in him with the with, with the ball at his feet, and and Rincon was a was a Rincon was a magnificent player, magnificent player. That team in general was just so good because of again we talked about it before they were all very good technically, you know even Bardavas Gomez, you know Gabriel Gomez the number six was was you know he was short he was small, uh, the one of the least flashiest players I've ever seen play the game. Uh, but he knew exactly where he had to be every single time. He, you know, I think Tim mentioned it before. It was just two touch from him every single time, uh, and he knew the players that were around him were the ones that could do the work. Those are the most underrated and underappreciated players in in football. The guys that that do the, the work that no one else wants to do in order to let the creative players thrive. And and that that those holding midfielders for Colombia were very very good at that. And 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 it's interesting because even Carlos Valderrama is I feel sometimes is is misdiagnosed if you will as as just a, a number 10. Uh but he was very physical as well. He was a physical player. He could hold off the the toughest and the biggest central defender. And and in that match against Argentina if you watch it it was I remember you know being at a uh, a friend's house of, of my my aunt and uncle were watching that match, and I did not know who Diego Simeone was until that day. But I could, I can promise you, I never forgot him uh, because of you could see this matchup. You clearly Simeone was one of the men that had to patrol the midfield and 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 physically mark Carlos Valderrama, and they had a very you know a historic battle that day in Buenos Aires. Uh, but I think if you look at it now, you know, Valderrama's he, he got the better of him. He, 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 he was a player that could get in people's heads. You know, even Oscar Ruggeri, one of the toughest defenders ever to come out of Argentina. There were times where all he could do is just whack Carlos Valderrama because he had a knack of getting away from tight, tight marks, using the, the, those, using Alvarez and, and Gomez, who were always just maybe two or three feet away from him to one touch around a tough mark. So they just understood each other so well. You know, they knew how each other would play and, and what their strengths were. And then if you could combine that with the type of pace of Rincon and Asprilla, I mean, you have a recipe for, for success.
be a team that we've mentioned a few things the, the goalkeeper the sweeper keeper who could play and I've seen uh, clips and I've seen videos of Rene Higuita winning penalties in the opposition penalty box. He never quite got that far for Colombia, but he, he was a part of the team uh, in the truest sense. Central defenders with a bit of pace, attacking uh, wing-backs. And then Gomez, who sits very deep, right in front of the defenders, but is just laying off to Valderrama. And Valderrama, you mentioned him being tough, and I think this is very important. When you're a, a, a midfield playmaker, and he wasn't behind the striker, for much of the game. He arrived in that position at times, but he would try to dictate things a little bit mm-hmm. deeper. But when you delay the pass, especially Correct. early 90s, he was getting clattered and he was standing up to some tough tackles and he was going. And he's very good, as you mentioned, at protecting the ball. Uh, and then Rincon breaking forward on the right. He was very good at filling in the gaps as well in the midfield. And I was incredibly impressed by Asprilla's work rate. He just never stopped. You see that game against Argentina. And for the third goal, he runs the length of the pitch, gets the ball near his own penalty box, breaks into the final third. Eventually, it comes to Alvarez, who hangs it up for uh, Rincon to score. But he's just run the length of the pitch. Two minutes later, he's pressing the defenders, wins it, breaks through and scores that beautiful clip finish over the goalkeeper. So for me, I was so impressed by uh, Asprilla's work rate and his, his coming back into support the midfield. Now, obviously, that's enabled by the high defence and the compact team, but he was really impressive. And I think as well, Valencia was was a very good player, a physical player, but also put in a lot of work defensively from the front. Aspria needs to come back a little bit because he needs space, doesn't he? He's a, he was a strange player, Aspria, because you look at him and he always looks like he's going to fall over. He's the most inelegant runner. But uh, he's he's got pace, he's got change of of, of direction, but he's he's he, you're right with the mobility because he, he's not going to operate as a target man number nine, is he? He's he's going to come back and give himself space to burst. And uh, with Colombia, both Balderrama and Rincon are both capable of infiltrating and running beyond the strikers. So you've uh, and especially with the with the compact lines, you've got lots of uh, lots of things for the opposing defence to worry about. They're never exactly sure where the threat's going to come from. Yeah, I agree. I think one, the one thing I'll also say is I think Colombians understood. You knew everyone just knew what the what the national team was in that at that time. We knew what we were, what we could do. We knew what our weaknesses were. Uh, there was a lot of confidence in that in that national team because of the way they played. And every like I said before, everyone identified with it. Really, everybody agreed with it. There was a, there wasn't a lot of division between fans that you see so often. Oh, we should be playing this guy, or we should be playing this way. Everyone understood that that was the strength. And, and I think leading up to that match, I remember again, I, I arrived in Cali, Colombia, you know, three days, four days before that that September fifth match against Argentina. And the buildup was, you know, it just felt like a final. It felt like a, a, a momentous occasion, like a big final. Um, and there was confidence, which, which doesn't always happen before Colombia plays Argentina, but I felt like there was, there was confidence among the fans. Like, you know, I remember being at a pizza place in Cali where you could sit outside and have pizza. And I saw, you know, a truck drive by playing like loud salsa music, but the, the bed of the truck, uh, was filled with, with probably like four or five fans, you know, Colombian fans. And, and there was a coffin inside the bed of the truck with an Argentine flag mm-hmm. draped over it. Uh, and, and, and it just got everybody riled up. That was that saw that everyone had kind of believed, even though there was that fear that, okay, it is Argentina. It's, it's at the Monumental. 
you know, but Diego Maradona wasn't going to play, you know, Canigio wasn't going to play. There was a sense that kind of like we had this and that's rare, you know, but that team had it. That team had the attitude, had the personality, you know, had players like Asprilla and Valencia that I really believe, and Rincon, that the Argentines really respected and, and, and feared a little bit because they knew that in this type of setup, the way Tim described it before, Colombia was going to be the team that was going to counter and and they had the they had the tools to do that they had the players to do that and that first half extremely nervy it wasn't great football i remember uh very physical colombia clearing it at times just kicking it out you know trying to find some space every once in a while valderrama and, and leonard alvarez would get on the ball and, and slow it down but overall just a nervy first half and so i remember that first goal which came at the end of the first half from freddy rincon it was like Colombia had won the World Cup because it it was the big of the five goals scored, that first one was probably the biggest goal of all of them because it came at the end. It came, it broke, it broke the deadlock clearly, but it also meant that the, all the hard work that they had done defending and just defending for their lives, they had scored a goal that clearly had rattled the Argentines at the end of the half. And so I just remember the first and second goals were the ones that really I, I just went crazy i went crazy the rest of them were just like it was just a party by the third goal the commentators were already asking everyone to please take out second half from about the 60th minute the the commentators were saying please please make tomorrow a national holiday we need to celebrate this we need to enjoy this please mayors wherever you are if you're listening government please make it as make it a national holiday <laughs> well you know it's funny especially with speaking to, to two brits here like so the, the school i went to in colombia was in cali was called el colegio colombo britannico so it was a british colombian school uh, my cousins went there, so so that was where I was going to go for that year. Uh, and so, you know, the the principal or the, you know the headmaster, if you will, was was a Brit. I remember his name was Mr. Quinn. Um, and the next day, literally the next day after this match, was the first day of school. And so, the, the you know that night, the game's over. It's five nothing. I remember my aunt. Every time Columbia would score, my cousin and I would run out into the street and just run around like just you know crazies. Uh, and by the end of the match, everyone was out in the street. Uh, I remember hearing my, my aunt yelling, like, please be careful. Like, careful out there because we heard gunshots. We heard, I saw someone drive by shooting up in the air. It was just madness. It was bedlam. Um, and the next day was the first day of school. So I go to the school. It's a, a very you know private school, very buttoned up. But that day, the teachers could not contain the students. Students ran off the bus draped in Colombian flags. Everyone's running around campus, just not obeying any type of routine or, or rule. And finally, 
uh, when everyone got together in the auditorium for kind of like a, a welcome message from, from Mr. Quinn, uh, one of the first things that he said, and I don't remember, I'm paraphrasing, but I do remember him saying that as, as an Englishman, that day, the 5th of September will be one he never forgets because someone besides the English had destroyed the Argentine. So, and it just sent this huge roar in the auditorium. It was as if we'd scored another goal. Everyone just went crazy. So it was an amazing moment um, and an amazing time. And, and, and to your point, it was, it felt like we, you know, Colombia had done something that they had never done before. That kind of anarchism <laughs> that you mentioned, that, that celebration, um, it, it sparked Again, as we've seen at times in Colombia, great moments of celebration can then suddenly be brought down to earth with horrible news stories and 725 injured, 85, 82 dead, 62 by homicides and 15 by transit accidents. And reading the newspapers at the time, again, there seems like a, a lot of reflection. And again, you, you, you see that again today. Some people this in despair you know that people are so proud of colombia but they're in despair of the violence how far were you aware of that felipe the the, the incidents particularly i think mostly in bogota it seems after the game and, and did that kind of dampen the mood at all in the days that followed well i mean i was i was young i was i was a 15 year old but like i said my aunt and, and uncle who clearly felt very responsible for me you know my, my parents had left let me go to colombia for the entire year i just remember that day and that night they were on edge. We were going crazy. My cousins and I were just beside ourselves, but the parents, all the adults were very, very weary, very, very concerned about what, what they were seeing out in the streets because it was a party atmosphere, but it was, you know, cars, you know, people sitting on top of cars, buses, you know, packed with, 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 with people and, and, and throwing flour at each other at people throwing eggs at cars. You know, for me, I'd never seen anything like that, you know, having, grown up in the United States up until then. Uh, but I remember my aunt and uncle being very concerned and, and kind of wanting to get home and just kind of end the night. Uh, I did read at the the next day and, and, and I heard about what had happened in the celebrations. And yeah, I was, I think I was shocked by it, but I, I was far too high on the adrenaline of the moment to be concerned since it hadn't affected me personally. And I, I was just happy to be in that country at the time. And I think it did, for me, having just arrived, it did, it, it gave me perspective. And I understood that if I were to go to the stadium and my uncle would take me, like you had to grow up really fast. You know, you couldn't, you had to have your head on your shoulders. You had to be smart. You had to be, you know, streetwise, which, you know, when I was watching this game, you know, before we got together, that was one of the things that came out. I think Columbia was just like a very streetwise team. They had like that type of attitude to them. That was the way that the country was at the time. Uh, very barrio-like type of play, you know, that type of attitude. And, and that's what I saw when I would go watch football as well. It was it was very, it was rugged, you know, it wasn't flashy. It's not European football. It's it's not, nothing like that at all. Obviously in Colombia, micro football, yes. street football, little metal goals, is how players, you know, how the game's played and you pass and you move and you pass and you move. And, and it, obviously even in these street football games, you have a goalkeeper standing there blocking this tiny little goal. And you, the way you score is you check the goalkeeper, you get him out, you find a space around him. And I can definitely see that style of football uh, influencing the professional game at this time. And even to today, um, it's all about moving the ball quickly and, and playing around your opponent. I don't know, perhaps my perception of Brazil is you get, you get the, the crowd on their feet by, beating a man one-on-one, -on -one, 
Whereas in Colombia, it's how many times can you pass it? How many touches can you have the ball before the opposition get near it? And that's kind of how you can win over the crowd or win over the, the neighbourhood uh, in these games. So Colombia qualifiers, stop of their group in South American qualifiers and are heading to the World Cup. Tim, what were your feelings of Colombia at the World Cup? Were you uh, looking forward to seeing this Colombia side? And, and for example, before this Argentina game, Maradona had said, Argentina are here and Colombia are below. And after that Argentina game, Pele was saying Colombia is uh, one of the favourites for the World Cup. Um, yeah, it was death, it? Uh, and look, looking back, we should have started worrying then. Um, uh, the assistant coach, Hernandario Gomez, uh, when he took Ecuador to their first World Cup in 2002, he knew very, very well it's different. You know, and he, he got criticised in Ecuador for saying it, but he was saying, you know, we're going we're going to learn. The pressures are, are different. So, and that that Colombia side, outside the conditions of the World Cup, they could have beaten anyone and did. Inside the pressures of the World Cup, especially the absurd pressures that that team had to uh, to cope with, they couldn't beat anyone. Um, you remember Ecuador in two thousand and two? You know, by the by the third game, they're ready. They play a terrific game against Croatia and beat them. But the first two games just kind of pass them by because mentally they're you know it's it's something which is which is so different and for for, for that Colombia team to go as am, among the favourites when they'd never won anything any any international you know I was there in Bogota when they won the Copa America in two thousand and one that was a celebration that scared me a little bit as well um, but you know in, in back in ninety four they they'd never won anything so um, uh, it, it it was I think in retrospect it was premature the uh the the expectations that, that were piled upon them simon i do agree i agree absolutely i, th- I remember being at at that school when the the draw the world cup draw was announced and clearly i've always been very conflicted between the united states and colombia when when, when they played against each other uh, i've always been very pro colombia i was born there i have a strong sense of, of my colombian ism if you will my national pride and and the United States, I've I've you know I'll root for them if they're playing anyone but Colombia, and, and when they played each other, and if whether it was a friendly, I always had this like weird anxiety about watching that game. And I remember being at that school in Cali, the draws announced, and when we saw that Colombia was was with the host nation, the United States, you know what? There was a lot of cheering among my classmates, like. They were that overconfident. They're like, "Oh, the United States, we've got this!" Like, there's a, there's three points right there. We know we're getting those three points. And I remember one of my friends, not a good footballer at all, but one of those guys that just is very knowledgeable, very cerebral about about the game, and knew every player, knew every tactic, every system. I remember he saw my face. He probably could sense my could sense my anxiety when I saw that Colombia was in the same group as the United States, and he came up to me and he said, "Felipe." You know, we got the host nation. This is not good. This is not good. He was the only one that was concerned about it other than me. Uh, and, and I agree with Tim. Like, Colombia had not won anything internationally. Yes, they had performed very well at those Copa Americas leading up to the 94 World Cup. Place, you know, 89, 91, you know, playing very well in, in those international tournaments. But to consider them a favorite, like, again, for a World Cup was looking back was ludicrous. It really was, and I think Simon, you mentioned it before. These these were domestic players. They were all from the domestic league, a good domestic league, clearly, but nothing like the team today. Which is what a lot of us point to now when we look at the Colombian national team of of twenty fourteen up until now. 
these are players that were, that were bred in Europe. That's what made them, you know, capable of going to a World Cup and performing at that level. They had been at under twenty World Cups before and 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 been devastated on their home turf. The the U twenty team, Hamas's U twenty team. You know, a lot of us look back at Valderrama, Rincon, Asprilla, other than, you know, Asprilla was in Italy, but the majority of those players didn't know what it was like to play outside of Colombia. And so they get to a World Cup, an international tournament, the biggest tournament on the planet, and any sense of pressure, anything that goes wrong will derail a team if you haven't been in those tough moments before. And that's the biggest difference between Colombian football at an international level from 94 to today. Now the players are, now it's like fans when they see there's a guy from Nacional de Medellín or América de Cali, they're like, what's this guy doing on the team? Which was the complete opposite of what it was like in the 90s. I think um, having so many domestic based players, obviously, again, the league was at a far higher level. We look at America de Cali getting to multiple Libertadores finals and then Nacional winning and South American football being higher in terms of the, the, the standard of world football. But I also think the fact that they had so many friendly, so many micro ciclos, I think it really did play an important role in the development of, of the Colombian game and mm. the ability to play that fast, sh- uh, short passing football. Mm. Uh, I think that was really an important factor. Looking at the World Cup, uh, Tim, there were so many great forward options. I think in a way, perhaps too many. Obviously, Asprilla and Valencia, but then they had uh, Valenciano, uh, Diavila, who was a great player, and even uh, Victor Aristizabal. I think for me, it, it seemed as though with the disappointing opening game, it felt to me that Colombia made some changes for the second game that perhaps compromised their style a little bit. They felt a little bit more direct. Starting the first uh, the first half with De Avila and Aspria, neither of which are kind of number nine strikers, and then immediately scrapping that and going with Valencia and Valenciano in the second half, we were, again, two physical strikers. It, it, for me, it felt that perhaps the pressure forced a bit of compromise for Maturano in that game. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's it's hard to see that game from from the Colombia side from a from a tactical point of view um i think the the emotional thing was obviously weighing so heavy and we were talking about about desperation times against a usa team that was extraordinarily well coached and very very limited but extraordinarily well coached by uh, by border now that they, they had the idea down to a t of reducing the field when you have the ball and opening up the field when they have the ball uh, and they they obviously worked on that on that very very well uh, and with a little bit of luck it was it was enough to it was enough to see them to see them win the game um but uh I, you know i think i think colombia were they were they, they were wandering around like people who just had their their pockets picked you know I, I don't think they were in any mental shape um, to play that game whatever tactical blend he would have gone with up front that United States team, clearly, obviously, yes, the host nation, a lot of expectation for them, but no one was expecting them even to beat Colombia, let alone, you know, advance out of the group. You know, if you listen to some of the players on that, that were on that United States team today, they just wanted to get out of the group. They didn't care what they did. They didn't care how they played and what it looked like. They just wanted to get out of the group. But they were very well coached. And Alexi Lalas, who's a central defender, for that United States team said recently in, in, a, in a podcast uh, with the Total Soccer Show here in the United States, uh, when he was asked about that game against Colombia, you know, they were very well prepared. They were very well prepared. They He knew that Colombia was very narrow, just a team that would consistently and constantly attack you down the middle. 
that they didn't have an alternative. And, and, and I think when I heard him say that, I just, I cringed a little bit as a Colombian because he was so, he was right. He was right. Absolutely right. If Colombia could not force anything down the middle, they weren't a team that could play wide. And I know we mentioned the attacking fullbacks, but they weren't attacking fullbacks that were sending, that were providing service into the box, uh, that were combining with with the forwards. They were just kind of pushing the ball upfield uh, and, and playing possession type of soccer, getting it to the players that could have advanced through the middle. And Alexi Lalas told you know the Total Soccer Show, we knew that they where they were going to attack us. And that central part of the field was the strength of the American side. They had very tough defenders. They had athletic central midfielders uh, and, and they could play, you know, they weren't great, but they could play, they could get the ball, they could possess, they could get it wide and they could counter. Uh, and if you combine that with, with what Tim mentioned, Colombia being in a, a completely just devastated type of mental state, not even wanting to be there, uh, you know, clearly affected psychologically by the death threats to several players, uh, Colombia was never going to win that game. And, and, and the United States behind 90,000 fans at the Rose Bowl in, in Los Angeles, uh, it was their World Cup final. It was just everything was working in their favor. But tactically, uh, you know, Bora Militinovic had had, you know, he read Maturana very well. He knew what they had. Alexi Lalas mentioned, you know, we had played them before in friendlies, which is true. You know, that, that generation of players from Colombia and the generation of the United States, uh, they played each other often. You know, that was a friendly that I remember watching several times as, as, as a young child, you know, as a preteen as a, as a, as, and as a teenager. I mentioned the anxiety of having to watch those games. So they knew each other well. Uh, and they were very, the United States was, you know, they were very well prepared for that match. Uh, and tactically, I think, you know, that was a game that Bora, uh, you know, he really did out-coach out Francisco Maturana. For me, looking at these two games at, at the World Cup, obviously Colombia went on to win the final game, but at that point it was too late. It definitely feels that uh, Maturana was was staying true, so staying pure to his his tactical philosophy. Whereas Romania, mm-hmm. again, I, I think an underrated side at the time, but but very some very talented players, Georgie Hadji in particular, they set up to limit Valderrama and sit deep and then attack on the counter very quickly targeting the fullbacks who uh, I think many Colombians as well would kind of agree were perhaps a slightly weak link in that side. Um, and then obviously the US, again, very well drilled. It kind of felt in a way to me that Colombia had a, a very pure, progressive style of football, which we can admire today. Um, but perhaps were a little bit unflexible in, in that tournament when obviously in a tournament, as Tim has mentioned, the pressure's on, the, the tiniest details can make all the difference. And it did feel a little bit that Colombia stuck to their game and decided they were going to play their way, uh, whereas the opposition perhaps focused on uh, trying to find uh, some of the, the gaps and some chinks in the armour, as you mentioned. It's a game, it's a game plan that's dependent on Higuita. Because they were flat at the back. You know, I remember when, when they played England in 1998, which is the last hurrah, and England weren't worried about them at all, you know, because they, they just defended so flat. You know, we're, we're going to get behind that, that, that flat defensive line. And it was Igita who kind of made that, that possible. Now, Romania were, uh, they were counter-attacking specialists. I mean, the, the best game for me of that World Cup by far is Romania against Argentina. Just a magnificent game of football. And what makes it a magnificent game of football is a clash of styles. Argentina keep coming at them and Romania are getting on on, on the break. Uh, and the counter-attack has won that one. And the counter-attack has won, uh, won uh, the game against Colombia as well, which was a great game. I, I've, got, I've got so many memories of that game. It was... Um, 
I was still in England. I was about to go to about to move to Brazil in about a month's time. Uh, and if I remember rightly, I haven't looked any of this up. It's all from I think it was the first Saturday of the World Cup. Uh, I think it, it, I think Italy had beaten Ireland. Uh, Ireland had beaten Italy earlier that day. And I remember I was at a party. And uh, there was a, the, 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 this Brazilian girl that she was a lovely, gorgeous girl and a, a lovely person as well. And we'd never got it on, but we were kind of close. And that was our, that was going to be our night, you know, and she was done up to the nines and she was sensational. And but I just couldn't pull, pull myself away from the, the, the game, which was late night, you know. And uh, uh, so I'm in a little room and when this party's going on, you know, me and a couple of others watching, the, you just can't take your eyes off the game. It was brilliant. I remember the English pundits, you know, ex-players, at half time during that Colombia Romania game, saying they do talk about Colombia, they do really play the beautiful game, don't they? Because you know they, they were really making the, making the ball the the, the ball ping, uh, and uh, she was a bit nervous, a bit highly strung. This girl, and by the time the game ended, she just she got so nervous she drunk herself into a stupor. So uh, it never happened, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, but you know, looking back, I've got no regrets. It was a great, it was a great ninety minutes of football. Francisco Maturana knows that there's a huge expectancy greater than there's ever been for Colombia. That in increases the pressure on them in many ways, but they're confident they're equal to it. And for the first time, Bering with a chance inside the Colombian penalty area. The goal! What a cracker it was too from Radichal! Well, that stunned Colombia. the contrasting styles of these two countries which is making it such an attractive encounter. Romania sitting back and then hitting quickly on the break. On the left that they concentrate this attack. Oh! What a stunning blow that one is! And Georges Agi proves his worth yet again. The Colombian goalkeeper, Cordoba, caught absolutely cold. What a terrific strike though from Agi. Well, if the American public was sceptical about the entertainment value of soccer, they should all be at this one, because uh, this really is the match so far of the World Cup. Corner from Perez. Oh, they've got a goal! Colombia are right back in it, thanks to Adolfo Valencia, who gets his reward. Colombia must be mystified as to why they're still behind in this match. Played one in here. It was a great match. I remember being uh, clearly. I was not. I, I was not at a party. I was too young to drink. Uh, but the the Romanians then ended up driving me to my bedroom, and 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 I laid in bed thinking I was so devastated. My my father had to come up 
and, and kind of get me out of my room and say, hey, you know, it's we still have two games. It's early. But the Columbia had, like we mentioned before, they had won so many games leading up to that. They had been just pre- pretty much invincible, unbeatable. Uh, and, and it was the type of match where you felt like throughout the game, Columbia was playing the way that they were supposed to play. Valderrama looked very good that day. Uh, you know, he was, he was on, he was polished. He, he, he was finding space, but you know, Romanian's goalkeeper had also the match of his life. You know, he was making all kinds of saves, uh, and, and the Romanians were just polished in the counter. They knew what they, they knew exactly what they had to do. And yeah, Georgie Haji is an excellent player. He's a top 20 player, probably on some people's list all time. Uh, and he was also full of confidence, you know, probably they're probably a team that no one really was thinking about heading into the world cup. And to Tim's point, they were very good. If you look back and you go to your, if, if anyone did an album, a world cup album back then, go back and look at that Romanian side, very good, very, you know, experienced European players and a, a team that had been together a long time. I think that 94 World Cup, there were so many kind of like generational teams uh, and Romania was one of them. They, they had been together a long time. They knew what they had in their number 10 and their captain, uh, you know, uh, an amazing player and a guy that, that really loved to be the villain and loved to kind of embarrass teams and, and, and shock teams with, with, a, with a flick, a pass, or, 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 or like he did against Oscar Cordova, a shot out of nowhere that just devastated the Colombian national team. So for me, as a, as a 16-year-old back then, that, that was a dark, dark day. I think by the time they lost to the United States, we were already all, I think all of us were kind of feeling some kind of dread about what was transpiring within the national team camp, whether we knew it or not. But the the loss to Romania was one that just popped it just popped the party the party balloons for everybody. That game against Romania and the the, the threats and the the pressure and the tension and you know borderline riots in Medellin and you know just just the fact that the the team was under so much pressure to to not fail they they'd gone there as the the image of Colombia to go and change the world's image of Colombia. Um, and after that first game, the pressure had gone from go out there and win the World Cup, show us what you can do, keep keep it up, to don't mess this up. You've now got to win against the US. Don't mess this up. Uh, the pressure was really something. And obviously, um, with the, the result against the United States, Colombia were eliminated. And shortly after the World Cup, uh, Andres Escobar, the, the gentleman of the team, the eternal number two, the guy who was the sensible one for many, uh, looking at that team, you know there were some big characters, but Andres Escobar was the was the mature, was the one in a serious relationship, who was a family man, who, as you mentioned, a, a more you know a more stable family situation, and he's the one who Tim mentioned earlier went out for a drink uh, to to show his face to the town to to kind of face up and present himself, and again I think. From what he said, he felt a lot more comfortable coming back to Medellin. Nacional fans were the first to forgive him. But then obviously the, the narcos and the, the criminal elements are, are less reasonable. And he was in a bar and he ended up being shot by a, a bodyguard. The bodyguard employees never faced any prosecution. And the bodyguard himself got 43 years but only served 11 one of the darkest days in Colombian football and and really something that sparked a, a lot of reflection uh, and kind of ruined that 
positive feeling in Colombia. How heavy did that feel, Felipe, once the news came through about Andres Escobar's tragic death? Uh, I mean, I remember where I was. I, I, by then, I had come back for the World Cup to you know to watch the World Cup in the United States. My you know I went to several games in Chicago and Detroit. Uh, I didn't see Colombia play per, uh, live, but I, I saw you know Brazil, Sweden, Germany, Spain, uh, and so I was in the United States. And by then, I was back playing with my with my my team, my my, my club team. I was at a tournament, uh, you know, a regional tournament, and my coach uh, took me to the side before 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 the match started. And he was, I'll never forget. He was the one that that broke the news. He said, "I thought you should know that you know, Andres Escobar was was." was killed today in Colombia. I did not, you know, I did not know there were no cell phones back then. We, you know, we didn't have an iPhone. Like you just, I don't even know how he found out to be honest with you, but he, he took me to the side and told me, and, and you know, I played the game, but I remember even being young and, and being affected by that and, and, and being stunned and, and, and shocked and, and just kind of wanting to call my pam, my parents or wanted to call my cousins and, and find out what had happened and how it had happened. And I think as, as a, as a, as a young 16 year old, who had just had the t- the year of, of my life in, in the country that I love, uh, it was kind of a sobering moment to know that that's that can happen that that happens uh, that that happens in South America. You know, we're we're it's that type of environment for some players, for some individuals, really for anyone. Um, I was I felt so far removed from that my entire life, and so. Uh, it was a devastating blow. And like you said, I think we all understood whether you were a young man or a senior citizen, what Andres Escobar represented for Colombia uh, and, and the type of player that he was. You know, they still have not probably ever produced another defender like him that that was a modern, you know, ball playing central defender that any European side would love to have. And so he was kind of a once in a lifetime uh, defender that was clearly, you know, you know, assassinated in, in the most heinous way, and it just left a very dark stain on Colombia for, for forever. You know, I remember thinking, I'm going to have to explain this to people for the rest of my life. I remember thinking that as a 16 year old. Now, you know, everyone's going to ask me about this, and and that's how it's been. I'm still asked about it today. Tim, obviously, this is a team that had a lot of uh, was a lot of importance for you as well. How did you feel when did you when you heard the news? Well, I'd, I'd never been to, to South America at the time. Um, uh, how on earth can you feel about something like that? And it happened while the tournament was 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 still going on. You know, so part of you is thinking, how on earth can I sit down and, and watch and enjoy the rest of the tournament when uh, when you know one of its one of its stars has has, has died as a as a result? And it brings me back to you know that this kind of almost love hate relationship that I often have with football. You know, I, I love it, but sometimes I think, you know, can we justify the amount of time that we spend on this thing? You know, are, are we really part of the problem, or are, are, are we part of, of the uh, of, of the solution? Tim is so right. You know, I thought he you, you couldn't have said it better. It, it was a way of knowing that the game wasn't as beautiful as we as we thought it was. You know, clearly it's it's not. I I, I love. You know, we all love to say you know the beautiful game, and, and there are times where it is, but clearly. It's not at, mm-hmm. at, at every instance. And, um, you know, that 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 World Cup to, to this day, that's why it's very difficult for me to, to even watch that World Cup, to read about it. 
because that's all I remember. I remember being disappointed. I remember being devastated. And, and, and I think what, what Tim mentioned is what is often forgotten is it's true. Andres Escobar was killed while the tournament was still going on. Just think about that. Um, it, it just shook the world. It shook the tournament. I think it changed the, the complexion of the tournament. And I've heard several times, uh, you know, ex-players that were on the United States team, uh, you know, like I mentioned, Alexi Lalas on that same podcast interview that he did just weeks ago, uh, him and, and, you know, John Harks, Marcelo Balboa, uh, Tony Miola, who, who have become very important, you know, footballers in this country. You know, so many of them have said, publicly that they would looking back they would much rather have lost that game if it meant that Andres Escobar would still be alive mm-hmm. uh you know Alexi Lala said that the other day on the same interview he's like we understood what that victory did for us it changed their life it really changed the the sport in this country that victory against Colombia and for a lot of those players it changed their careers but they they it was like losing a brother. It's losing a coworker. It's losing a colleague. And and that's what Alexi Lala said just weeks ago that he would much rather have lost that game of immense that Andres Escobar would have been spared. Con el pibe y con René, te vimos por la TV. Aquella tarde huele. were Tim Vickery and Felipe Cardenas. Editing by Simon Edwards and Adam Brandon. This has been a World Football Index production.